Well, good morning uh, again, uh, and welcome to Christ Community's downtown campus. It's great to see you this morning uh, as we begin kind of the Christmas week. Um, some of you are making plans for travel, and I just want to say thanks for taking time to be with us this morning. Um, and usually around this time of year, um, well, maybe let me, I'll put it this way. Allie and I have had this debate more than once. It's a pretty critical debate about stuff that happens around this time of year, and strictly around when you start playing Christmas music, right? You've all probably had that debate um, or conversation uh, with family, with friends, roommates, uh, maybe just a personal principle, because everybody needs to have a game plan on when you let those sleigh bells ring, right? Um, in our home, uh, it's, it's pretty intense about not playing it until the day after Thanksgiving. And that's mainly for me, because I like to let... Um, Allie know that I'll be home for Christmas back in July, and that's, she's a good planner and everything, but she just doesn't need to know that. Um, so, so why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we sing, uh, not why do we sing Christmas music in July, but why, why do we put a kibosh? Why do we put a hold on Christmas music for a period of time in the year? Anyone? It's mainly because we all know that if we start playing Christmas music too soon, then by the time Christmas Day rolls around, it can get old. And, you know, it loses its charm. You know, if I hear those silver bells one more time. Um, and we hope it doesn't get to that by the time of Christmas. So, well, whether it's silver bells, jingle bells, sleigh bells, whatever, um, I get it. But when it comes to Christmas, no matter how many times I hear the story read, no matter how many times I re-enter Christmas, Christmas never gets old. Christmas never gets old. Now, that... For some of you, that sounds like a phrase that instantly got you checked out of whatever I'm about to say. Hold on, um, because I know for some of you, Christmas got old when you realized you were going to have to spend it alone again this year. Christmas, Christmas got old maybe for some of you when you've seen too many family gatherings go from good cheer to backbiting. For some of you, Christmas got old when you got that mailer back in August from World Market already about a Christmas sale, like seriously, um, that stuff, it gets old way too quick. Um, but Christmas, Christmas is much bigger than warm fuzzies on a cold day. It's, it's much bigger than how we feel about tinsel. Christmas, because what has happened, never gets old. It never gets old. And I'm going to say something that sounds kind of strange, um, but anymore in our culture, it isn't. Christmas, from the perspective of the Christian faith, is one of the most surprising stories of all time. And this morning, we're going to see a, a few ways, there are more, a few reasons uh, why Christmas never gets old, okay? Um, so if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like a Bible, we've got some on the flip side of our dividers. And to make it easy, we're going to be on page number 556, okay? Okay. Um, so Christmas never gets old. It's a pretty audacious statement for many of us, <laughs> uh, especially when it was old um, yesterday. Uh, but why? I think first, it's because, yes, Christmas is hard to believe, but, but it's even harder to ignore. It's hard to believe, but it's even harder to ignore. There, there are lots of ways of, of looking at Christmas and its purpose. For example, if you're someone who reads the Wall Street Journal or listens to Marketplace on NPR, guilty, um, Christmas is all about a boom or a bust for the American economy, right? If you, um, if you watch Lifetime, 
Um, anybody watch Lifetime? I don't. My wife does. <laughs> With her sister and her mother. Um, there's always all these Christmas stories. And on a side note, you didn't, they didn't get this in first service. But on a side note, if you ever watch a Lifetime Christmas movie, there's always a lawyer who meets a woman in distress um, and he comes to help her. She hates him. They fall in love. Then they have a falling out. And then they end happily ever after. So if you ever want to watch a Lifetime Christmas movie, that's it. Um, no matter what year it comes out, um, that's the Lifetime Christmas movie. Well, Christmas, according to Lifetime, is really about being with and celebrating family. Um, if you like Charles Dickens and you read A Christmas Carol, maybe every year or sometimes uh, once, Christmas and Charles Dickens is about rediscovering the Christmas spirit. If you watch Elf, one of my favorite Christmas movies, then, then Christmas is about believing the ridiculous. <laughs> because we as adults, we've lost any sense of wonder. Um, for others of you, if you pay attention to the political side of things at all, it's always the familiar de- debate always pops up. Do we say Merry Christmas or do we say Happy Holidays, right? Um, and then lastly, I have to say this because this is an iconic Christmas film, A Christmas Story. Um, what is Christmas about? It's about a young kid wanting a gun. Which is really interesting when you think about Christmas, and strange, strange. But the the story of Christmas, according to Luke, the story that got all of this going has little to nothing to do with any of that. And when we look at Luke chapter 2 and begin in verse 1, Luke writes, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, contrary to much of what we hear around this time of year, Christmas isn't about feel-good fairy tales. It's not about financials and focus groups. But really, Christmas is about the facts. Spoiler alert. Christmas is about the facts. And actually, the whole Christian faith is uniquely that way. And maybe you've never heard that before. But when you come to the gospel account of Luke, Luke in chapter 1, at the very beginning, he sets out and says, hey, And he's writing to a guy named Theophilus, and he says, hey, I'm actually trying to do an accurate record of history of what happened with Jesus. I know this happened a few decades ago, but I'm trying to figure out what really happened with Jesus. I'm talking with eyewitness accounts. I'm corroborating evidence. And so I'm trying to bring this together. And that's why he mentions people like Caesar Augustus. That's why he mentions a guy named Quirinius. That's why he mentions tax code. How did tax code make it in the Christmas story? That's strange. You know, uh, that's why he mentions geography, because he's actually trying to get at history, history. And because of this, we have a story that doesn't just inspire us, but it confronts us. Let me show you what I mean. When when somebody comes to you and presents the facts, they're, they're kind of daring you to check on them. They're kind of daring you to check on them because facts are a lot more dangerous than fairy tales and mere stories. Stories, sure, they can warm your heart, You can feel good, but they don't necessarily change your life, okay? They don't necessarily change your life. And Christmas, if it was just a story, we could say, aw, and then move on with life as we've always lived it, which many of us do when it comes to Christmas. But facts, they beg to differ. They kind of get in your face, and they change your world whether you like it or not. And then facts beg the question, hey, are you going to blissfully ignore me or authentically explore me. And that's what Luke is seeking to do in Luke chapter 2 and give us this account. We find here Mary and Joseph in the first century go to a small town of Bethlehem and give birth to a baby boy who is said to bring peace to the whole earth. It's hard to believe, but don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. 
Instead, I want to ask you the question, um, when was the last time, one, you read the Bible? Then two, when was the last time you read the Bible, and specifically Luke chapter two, from the lens of history, of what Luke is saying he's actually setting out to do? When's the last time you read Luke chapter two from the lens of history rather than just chicken soup for the soul? In other words, how do you read Christmas? How do you read Christmas? This isn't just an inspiring personal story. Instead, this is actually the history of the whole world and how it's being delivered from injustice, from suffering, from sin, and from death. And so when you read Luke chapter 2, do you come with the perspective that this is God breaking into history, changing the trajectory of the whole world? Or do we just come with a myopic, a small view of seeing God inspiring our personal little worlds. There's a key difference there. How do you read Christmas? Now, I, I want you to also hear me say it's important that when we read Christmas and we understand what God is doing here, he's come to impact our lives personally, yes. But that's not the whole story. It's much bigger than that. It's much bigger than just you and yours. It's much bigger than the people who look like you, talk like you, act like you. But God's come to actually impact the very trajectory of the history of the whole world. Is it easy to believe? No, it's actually hard to believe. But it's even harder to ignore what's happening here. How do you read Christmas? How do you read Christmas? And I think this leads us to my second surprise as to why Christmas never gets old. Um, Christmas never gets old, I think, because Christmas is really easy to miss. It's really easy, and some of you are going, okay, that's impossible. Um, I, it's all over the news, and it's all over uh, the media. No, Christmas is easy to miss, but even more difficult to deny. Christmas, with all of its pageantry and the shows going on in Branson, Missouri, right? It's still actually very easy to miss. And when you look at Luke chapter 2, verse 1, Luke mentions Caesar Augustus. Of all people, Caesar, what's he doing here? Well, he's being very intentional Caesar Augustus, in the time of Jesus, was actually one of the most, most powerful people on the planet. And up to that point, was the most powerful person the world had ever known. And so the very springboard for the Christmas story is this guy, Caesar, levying a tax for the whole world, and you better obey or else. Because a lot of things have changed since the first century, but taxes aren't one of them, right? The, the, and the booger of this uh, tax law is that you have to go to your ancestral town to register. That's what we see here in our passage. Joseph, that means for him he needs to go to Bethlehem where his great, 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 you get the idea. His great grandfather David lived in Bethlehem before he was king. And he was an ancient, familiar, famous king, the one king that every Israelite could look back to and say, man, he did it right. He had some big faults, but man, we need another king like David. And so I want you to think about this. We come to Luke chapter 2. And what Luke is painting a picture of is Augustus, Caesar Augustus, in Rome, lifts his little finger. And Rome was the center of power in the world at that time. He lifts his finger and he sends out a tax, decrees a tax, on a province some 1,500 miles away that he's never going to visit, which impacts a couple who makes an extremely hazardous trip, 80 miles, which may have taken them about a week to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, a couple he'll never meet. And they go to the back city or the backwater city of Bethlehem in the middle of nowhere. 
And we complain about having to stand in line at the DMV for taxes, right? <laughs> Anybody ever done that where you wait in line and then you realize you have to do tax forms in Missouri? That was something new for me. Also, interestingly enough, tidbit, you didn't know this was happening for you on Sunday morning. Actually, you can put your name in at the DMV and they'll text you when you're up next. So just to give you a heads up, you weren't expecting that. It has nothing to do with the text, but just a way to be kind to you. But here's, here's the thing. That's not all that's going on here. Everybody and their mother is going back to Bethlehem to register for this tax. We see it in history. And there's no room in the end. Verse 7. And you know how it goes when family visits. It's a lot of fun, but there's barely any room for anyone. Uh, for me, I always got the basement with the inflatable mattress that was deflated by the morning. So you're on co cold concrete, right? Merry Christmas. Um, and, and here's the deal. Mary and Joseph, they don't even make it inside anywhere. They find themselves in a back alley stable, more than likely a cave. And their baby, their young baby boy, is in a manger, a feeding trough. And it's my hunch that everybody in this town is talking about the tax. Everybody in Bethlehem is talking about Caesar, about politics, about economics. Or at the very least, they're talking about dreading seeing Aunt Esther's, you know, judging eyes or, you know, creepy Uncle Levi's weird hugs. Um, you know, whatever it is, talking about these strange scenarios. And, and we don't really know exactly what everybody's talking about, but we can almost guarantee no one's talking about Mary and Joseph. Nobody's talking about this couple who couldn't find a place to stay and then give birth to a baby in a stable, in a cave. Because that's much more Jerry Springer than it's ever been Larry King, right? You know, it was much more drama than people considered news at the time. And right here we come to see just how easy it is to miss Christmas. It's still easy to miss what's really going on here. We get distracted by the big things of Caesar or whatever's replaced Caesar and we still miss the point. And yet, it's even more difficult to deny what's really going on here. And Luke doesn't let us miss what's going on here. Because in the midst of all this power play that's going on with Caesar and Quirinius and the Roman government and the judicial uh, rulers of Jerusalem and all these things, a young couple ends up in Bethlehem to give birth to a baby boy. And there's an ancient prophecy for the Hebrew folks that highlights that a king who would be the king of all kings, the king to end every other kingdom was to be born in Bethlehem, the Messiah, the Christ. And it was by a guy named Micah, a prophet, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And this is what he writes. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Remember, he's in the line of King David whose origin is from old, from ancient days. And I want you just to hold that thought because think about all the various details that God had to orchestrate to get this couple in this town with all of these pieces coming together. For starters, think of Caesar Augustus, okay? He's a man that was not born into power. He was actually born powerless. Um, but Julius Caesar, the Caesar at the time, took notice of who was Octavian at the time and adopted Octavian as one of his sons. Um, after Julius Caesar dies, um, then Octavian becomes Augustus by the Senate. They give him this great, glorious name that has all these divine undertones, actually, that he has something, God is doing something in Augustus. Um, and he becomes the unspoken emperor of Rome. He expands the Roman Empire so much that he actually levies or uh, reorganizes the tax base without somehow about a global uprising. 
which is pretty magnificent. Um, who doesn't like their taxes being reorganized? You know, no one. Um, and yet, somehow, this still undergoes. Now, Caesar Augustus. Let's talk about Joseph and Mary. Okay, Joseph's family was originally from Bethlehem. And at some point, one of his ancestors or maybe one of his family, because of work or because of food, whatever, they moved from Bethlehem to Nazareth, small, backwoods, Nazareth. And Mary's family somehow find themselves in Nazareth. And amidst the other prospects, maybe there weren't a ton in Nazareth, depending on how small it is. If you ever grew up in a small town, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but they, they run into each other, Mary and Joseph, and they get introduced and they become betrothed. They're not married yet, but they're promised to be married. Let's look specifically at Joseph. He has to be in the lineage or in the line. The ancient King David has to be his ancestor. And then he has to be an eligible and a willing bachelor for Mary, who is pregnant with a child that isn't his. That's a shocker. And then Mary, a virgin, is pregnant, and she has to humbly embrace her calling. And so we find this unlikely couple with all these details working together to bring them together. Both of their details really important, actually. And yet we still haven't got them to Bethlehem. So then you find Caesar Augustus. Finally, Caesar Augustus comes back into the picture. And we understand when he makes this tax that requires you to go back to the town of ancestral roots, that Joseph now brings his betrothed and pregnant Mary along with him to Bethlehem. And in the midst of all of that, we don't know if Mary, how late Mary was in her pregnancy, somewhere six, seven, eight, nine months, somewhere in there. She probably wasn't nine months ready to pop, you know. But even so, that sort of travel for 80 miles can easily induce preterm labor. And so she finds herself arriving in Bethlehem with Joseph, and they finally give birth to a healthy baby boy named Jesus. And those are just the obvious details on how these things are working out. Imagine all the underlying details to bring this all together that line up with this old word from a guy named Micah because God said it was going to happen. Now, even amidst all this, we can still miss the point of the Christmas story. Sure, Caesar can levy a tax, but God is orchestrating history. Sure, Caesar can command you to do something, but God can use you and he can use Caesar whether you like it or not, to accomplish his purposes. You see, Caesar is playing checkers, whereas God is playing chess. And you can't really deny it when you look at the details. The proof is in the figgy pudding, if you want to have a terrible pun in the middle of a sermon. And, and the main idea, or the main reason that Caesar Augustus is remembered, out of, you know, Julius Caesar is usually the Caesar people remember, But why do we remember Caesar Augustus? One of the main reasons we remember him is because he was the Caesar at the time of Jesus. And as we look at the flow of the story of Jesus and how it pans out, we come to find that Jesus is the one who becomes the dividing line of history. Yeah, Christmas is easy to miss. It was easy to miss back then and it's easy to miss now. But it's even more difficult to deny what's going on here. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Amidst all these festivities, who do you see in Christmas? Who do you see in Christmas? God's in the details, but don't lose him in the details. Don't get so infatuated in the details that you lose him. Sometimes we can come to this story and we can say, oh, I see myself in Mary. I I can see, I can relate with Joseph. I, I understand maybe I'm like the innkeeper. Maybe I'm like the shepherds. And there's something there we need to ask. But the main point is to see that God came to earth. 
and he orchestrated history for his arrival. That's at the very center of what's going on here. Who do you see in Christmas? Who do you see in Christmas? Now hear me this morning. One of the greatest comforts we have is that in the midst of all the craziness of our world, the things happening in Pakistan, the things that are still happening in our own nation, Christmas is proof positive that God is sovereign over all of it. All of it. And he's working out his plan of salvation even despite it. And the greatest comfort we can have is not in just getting a greater glimpse of who I am out of this story. Not at the start. The most crucial, crucial point of this narrative is getting a greater glimpse of the God in the manger. Of the God in the manger. The God invisible, all powerful, becomes visible. The one who is heavenly becomes earthy. The one who is holy becomes homely. (laughs) Is he who you're looking for in Christmas? Who do you see in Christmas? And I think that's why, lastly, Christmas never gets old because Christmas isn't cute, but it's glorious. Christmas isn't cute, but it's glorious. Now, something that's cute, it gets cheesy real quick, right? It's cute maybe at the beginning and then it's really cheesy really quick or we grow out of it. But something that's glorious something that changes the very fabric of our lives or alters the very nature of history. That's something that strikes us with awe and it moves our lives from never being the same. And when we get to verse seven, actually the irony of this story comes to the full force. You know, remember, God has, in a sense, used the Roman Empire as his plaything. He's orchestrated all of history for his arrival. And then we get to verse seven and we read, And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. What? Out of all the details, God, did you forget to make reservations? You know, like, what's what's going on here? Is there there's no room in the inn? And we've tried to make this really cutesy with precious moments, nativity scenes, but it's not cute. It's not cute. This family is so poor, so poor, that they spend their time in a stable giving birth to their son and stick him in a feeding trough? That's not really what doctors would really call sterile. Or is it cute? But according to the angels in verse 14, they call it glorious. Glory to God in the highest. And if you get to verse earlier in verse 10 through verse 12, the angel, what does the angel say to one of these shepherds? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Remember, David pops up again here. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Of all the things that can reveal God's glory, the numerous stars in the sky, that no matter how we try in science, we cannot count. The, the, the complexity of the human cell, as soon as we have it figured out, quantum mechanics actually presses this in, in further and says there's actually a lot more going on there than we can really fathom. This baby in a manger speaks a better word than anything that has come before him. And it astounds even the angels. You know, when Caesar Augustus was born, it's reported um, that he, on, on his birthday, he was announced even as a god that he was to come to bring good news of great joy. Sound familiar? To bring peace, to be a savior. Sounds a lot like what was proclaimed over Jesus, right? 
Actually, Caesar, um, in the first century as well, he'd hired about 40 people to be his traveling entourage choir. At every event, they would sing his praises, and he levied a tax to pay them. Could you imagine having your own soundtrack wherever you went? It's kind of one of my dreams. Um, but that would that'd be pretty interesting. But here, what we find with Jesus, what we find with Jesus is it's not a 40-person paid choir. It's a multitude of angels in the midst of a field that reverberate and shake even the fear in shepherds. Caesar, a man who was born of low esteem, tramples every man and seeks to climb the ladder of power, whatever it takes, so that he can finally be God-like. But God, the ruler of the universe, takes a totally different trajectory. With all power, he travels down to become the lowliest of humans, to become even a babe in a stable and a feeding trough. You notice the difference? Sure, the messages that were proclaimed over their birth sound very similar, but the meanings are drastically different. Drastically different. We find a God who has become flesh, become killable, and we find him in his finest hour. But it begs the question, why? If God has orchestrated history, and he's the one who's sovereign, and he's kind of prepared for his preparation to finally come and to bring peace. Why? Why all of this? And this is what never ceases to amaze me. This is why Christmas never gets old. Because God came to do what Caesar could never do. He came to give what we desperately need. You see, Caesar had his Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which was actually a peace for a very elite few on the backs and brutality of the many. But when Jesus comes, he comes actually offering a totally different kind of peace that's available to all people who embrace him as their Lord and Savior, the Pax Christi over against the Pax Romana. And what's so amazing is not only that this is history, that Luke has done his due diligence, not only that God is orchestrating this history, but the very fact that God has orchestrated this that he might bring peace to all people, all people. And so let me ask you this morning, when you read the history, when we push away all the the chintzy Christmas decorations, but when we get to the history, what started all the major tradition, who does God see in Christmas? Who does God see in Christmas? And that may sound like a strange question, but I think we need to ponder it for a moment because the answer The answer to that question in Christmas is actually God's message that he will stop at nothing to bring peace to all people. He will stop at nothing to bring peace to all people, not just the powerful, but the weak, not just the rich, but the poor, not just the smart, but the silly, you know, not just the good looking, but the least attractive, not, not just the strong, not one people group over another but all people, and yes, even people like you and me, no matter what's been a part of your story, the floodgates have been opened wide to all who will receive him. And to prove it, the angels, and and if you don't know this, this may be an aha moment for you, but the angels, they go to the people that everyone else usually overlooks, the shepherds. They're not the people everybody's ready to invite to their party to show that God's glory and this baby is for anyone and everyone. They go to the least, the most commonly overlooked. Who does God see 
in Christmas? He sees everyone. He has a magnificent global perspective of the world when we can't even take our eyes off ourselves for a moment. Christmas, this is what Christmas is. It's the historical reality that the God of the universe has orchestrated time space for his arrival to bring what Caesar could never bring, to bring what Caesar would never bring to a people Caesar never thinks of. A peace that is true peace to all people. This is radical. This is the gospel. This is what Luke wants us to hear when he's writing and recording his history in the first century, talking to eyewitness accounts. And that's why when you get to verse 18, as was read for us, everyone who hears it, they wonder. That's why in verse 19, when Mary hears it from the shepherds, what does she do? She ponders it deep within her heart. That's why when the shepherds finally see what the angels had told them has really come to fruition in time space, they realize their world is going to change. And so they walk away praising and glorifying God and actually become the first people to tell others about it, witnessing to others. They're witnesses. That's a key word. We use this in court cases. We use this in history. Eyewitnesses. They saw it happen. That's history. And that's why Christmas never gets old. That's why Christmas never gets old. I I recently read a story of a group of Christians um, who lived and died in this never-ending wonder of Christmas. And it's not an easy story, but I think we need to hear it amidst all the flashy elements that we usually have in our culture of Christmas anymore. During the Rwandan tribal genocide in 1994, there was a group of some 13,500 Christians made up of both Hutus and Tutsis who were hiding together in a safe place some 13 miles from Kigali. And... here's the thing, these two tribes were at war. And they would have been fighting each other if they would have embraced the cultural values of the militia in their day and in their time and in their community. But instead of fighting each other, they're hiding together. Eventually, their safe haven is discovered by the rebel militia. And the rebel militia, some of the leaders say, all right, it's time to separate. We're going to kill the inferior tribe. And one of the key leaders of this Christian gathering of some 13,500-ish people stands up and says, we will not separate, for we are one in Christ. And for a moment, each person's equality founded in Jesus Christ, the true Lord and Savior, brought peace between these two tribes. The tribal conflict was laid to rest in the Pax Christi by Christ alone. Unfortunately... That moment didn't last very long, um, and the potential power of peace, it was silenced by the sound of machine guns as they mowed down all 13,500 people. It was a gruesome sight. As they held on to Jesus' kingdom policy of peace, for a moment, there was an alternate pathway in history. And yet a few men who held on to the old Romanesque military tactics and held to a new Pax Romana that still resides today with its violence, they took out their violence on these Christians and slaughtered them. And it's, it's gruesome to imagine the chaos in that moment. And the reason I highlight it is to point out the power of the Christ in Christmas. 
the power of the Christ in Christmas. Because if Christmas is gloriously true, and it's not some cute little moment that we take to share some gifts, but if this is really a cataclysmic and major moment in the history of the world, that God came to earth in Jesus, lived in time and space, died in time and space, and rose again, then these Christians were not martyred as fools but they were martyred because they knew true and eternal peace. And even now, standing with Christ, knowing that death does not have the final word, they stand in victory in eternal peace with Jesus together. The Pax Christi will survive. Christmas is much bigger than us. Christmas, it's a message of good news of what God has done in the world, whether we like it or not. And he's continuing to work in the world, whether we admit it or not. It's not a cute story about warm fuzzies. But this is God entering our mess because he's that big, he's that powerful. Even even when the warm fuzzies fizzle, which they will, tough times come. Even when the songs of good cheer turn to weeping, because they do, We hold on to the call of Christmas to hold on to Christ as the true Lord, the true Savior of the universe, and align ourselves with Him on the winning side of history. How do you read Christmas? Who do you see in Christmas? Do you ignore or even are you at the point where you're denying what God has done in orchestrating history for His arrival? Because if you have, then you also miss out on the glorious gift that God has come for all people to bring a peace and redemption to the world. That's Christmas. It's a good news of great joy for all people centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Christ of Christmas, he can change our neighborhood. He can bring about peace. He can bring about justice. The Christ of Christmas, he can change our city. He can change our nation. He can change our world. And we already get some of those glimpses, even in this horrifying story back in 1994. Some of you have already experienced some of the work that Christ has done in your own life, in your own relationships. And hear me this morning. The time has come to decide who you will stand with in history and what God is doing, whether you're with him or not. Will you stand with the true Christ? And if you do, Christmas will never get old. Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May it be holy in our city. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this Christmas season, may you give us our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. May we be a people defined by forgiveness. Lord, may you not lead us into temptation, but may you deliver us from evil, the evil that we cultivate and the evil that others have cultivated and the brokenness of this world. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.